Hello everyone and welcome to the seventh and final episode in the COVID Alarm Clock podcast series. You mean the final episode of series one? Oh, I, I don't know. Are we, doing a, are we doing a series two? I don't know. Are we? Mm, I, I don't know. Mm, good. Good question. Good question. Um, anyways, I'm Dara Wynn. And I'm Ellen Hagerty. A massive thank you to everyone who has listened so far. Um, we're delighted with the response that we've gotten. Yeah, like, thanks a million. And um, just, like, if you have actually enjoyed the series and, you know, you, you thought it was good, we'd love it if you could recommend it to to a friend um, or just give it a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you don't like it, say nothing. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, no, but please, please spread the word. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, Probably a good idea to go back and listen to some of our older episodes first. I think this one kind of ties it all together. Um, so yeah, might be worth going back listening to the older episodes first. Anyways, thanks for listening and uh, enjoy the last episode. Here we go. If somebody told you on New Year's Day 2020 how much the world was going to change, you probably wouldn't have believed them. Suppose you had known, what would you have done differently? How would you have prepared? And what if you'd even more time to prepare, say three years? What action would you have taken? Would you have moved somewhere different? Applied for different jobs? Developed different skills? Would you have warned your friends? And do you think they'd have even believed you? We can only look back now at these hypotheticals and wonder what we could have done. But here's the thing. There's another crisis heading our way, a crisis that's sure to be worse than COVID-19. It's the climate crisis. We still have time to take action and as a result live happier, healthier and fairer lives. So the question actually isn't what should we have done, it's what will we do now? And how can we use our experience of COVID as a wake-up call to take real action? Welcome to the COVID Alarm Clock. This episode of the COVID Alarm Clock is our final episode and we are going to be looking at ecology. Ecology is how everything on the whole planet is interconnected. So we may struggle to get a whole discussion about the interconnectedness <laughs> of everything on the planet into one podcast and we may go off on the odd tangent. But bear with us because, you know, it's actually a really important discussion to have, especially in relation to in relation to the climate crisis. Yeah, you know the way in a crisis, some people find God or turn to God. Yes. During the COVID crisis, did you find nature? Um. Yes. Yeah, I did. Uh, that's a really nice. That's a really really lovely question, Alan. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> When you say found nature, yeah, I think I rediscovered my connection with nature and the value of nature, the impact that nature has on me, um, the importance of being connected to nature. Yesterday I was walking home and there were two starlings on a wire making so much noise, like amazing. On my cycle to school in the mornings, I cycle along the canal and there's two swans that live on the bank of the canal you pass them every morning. Some mornings there'll be a heron oh, standing, the standing on the on the path. 
and and then I'd cycle towards him and he'd fly away, but he'd fly alongside me and then land further up ahead. And then the cycle would repeat a couple of times (laughs) until until he figured it out. Um, And then one morning there was what I thought was a cormorant there. But recently I've realized that it's not a cormorant, it's a shag. I think cormorants are bigger. So, you know, all these times there have been shags right in front of me and I've been misunderstanding the situation um we because we had the children home from school one day and they were so depressed because they missed it was the day before halloween and there were there was there were the school was putting on a little kind of socially distant halloween parade or something but one of the children had a cough and we couldn't send them in and uh but that day a young juvenile hedgehog came into the garden and we had to rescue it because it was the wrong time of year for a juvenile hedgehog to be out. It needed to put on weight before hibernation. So, so it was amazing. It was suddenly it kind of turned the day around completely. We got this the mysticism and magic of of a hedgehog in the kitchen. Turned the day around for the hedgehog as well, Ellen. Yeah, it did. It's gone to a wildlife sanctuary now. So, oh, great. Um, it'll be re released. Not you're in, not in speaking spring. metaphorically there, are you? God no, no, no! It's genuinely it is some. We we got it, so it got a. It it was ta- it, it it was collected from our house, um, and then went to Cabra, and then it went on to Kildare, and then it'll be re released okay. in in a safe Great. area when it hibernations. Going over. to a different county during yeah. lockdown. What a it's allowed for hedgehog. for wildlife rescue. Um. <laughs> but even just you know, you, people talk about the connectedness with God and. I asked you about, you know, finding nature. You know, like back in the day, humans used to worship nature as their god. Yeah. You know, the sun, the moon, the the water goddesses, you know, the wind, like the sun god. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And animals used to have like god forms. Like um, there was a goddess, I was reading about what goddess was she what was she taught she take the form of but like you'd have you know in the form of animals you'd have gods that would take forms of animals so I think it's something that's ingrained in our humanity uh, not uh, not only is it ingrained Ellen I would say but I'd say that it's you know there came a point in human evolution where we were starting to be able to verbalize things and and express things you know um but at some point, we also had this innate understanding of nature that we couldn't express. So those, so that that creation of those gods was that expression of an innate understanding of nature. <laughs> even, but even even in the Bible, <laughs> I was reading Genesis there one of the days, and the fall of humanity out of the Garden of Eden. It doesn't say anything about like original sin being sex or 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 anything like that it says that the temptation was taking the apple was that the people would 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 gain knowledge and essentially know good and evil so it's kind of all so even that removal from the garden of eden is essentially where people are taken away from nature and start to you know prescribe like good and evil two things like making have things dominion human. over there's the no, earth there's no there's no good and evil in nature there's just nature and it's all one big cycle and then so basically the fall of man was when we left that like that's in 
that's in Genesis. Um, and it, yeah, yeah, as that interpretation, I think it's. And like, if you if you go together. go towards science, then and our understanding of the ecosystem, like up until quite recently, if you see a, a, a diagrammatic depiction of the ecosystem, the ecosystem is this circle with you know animals and nature and the environment. And then on the outside of the circle are human beings. We're mm. like standing beside this, 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 the circle of life. We're standing beside it. And it's only re- relatively recently that somebody thought to pop us back in there. It just, it yeah. beggars belief. It beggars it belief does. that and we are out with the ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, I think, I, yeah, totally. <laughs> and it beggars belief that we're out of the ecosystem and also that it's still widely and generally accepted that we're out of the ecosystem. You know, it's yeah. st- like it's still not the mainstream held belief that, you know, we are part of nature. It's still not reflected in our governance or in our politics or in our economics or in our media, which we've been talking about. Um, so, And that's one thing that bothers me about, you know, climate change. We always talk about, you know, the impact it'll have on humanity, but like it's the impact it'll have on all living things upon the planet. Yeah, yeah, Us yeah, yeah. And the animals and the plants and the fish and the it's it's it's, it's I am always kind of like all like our natural world, all living things upon the planet from the mosses and the bacteria all the way up to to us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um I was thinking about seagulls and I was thinking about how I hate seagulls. You know the way seagulls come and they take people's food mm. and and I hate it. Like I hate it it just unnerves me so much that, you know, and I think part of it is that there's, you know, there's this line that we have drawn between us and nature. And like, this is human food. Seagulls shouldn't come near it. And I think it's the fact that the seagulls remind me by taking my food that it's us violating nature, not them. <laughs> I think that's why it upsets me so much. And can I take that for a second and turn it around, Dara? Like, yeah. what do we go when we send our big trawlers out to sea? I know, why are uh, yeah. seagulls I'm coming the, inland yeah, in the yeah, first yeah, place? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. Why Why are the foxes yeah, yeah. gone urban? Well, totally, that's that's why. Yeah. That's that's what the seagull reminds me of, yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's why it upsets me so much. Ellen, there's so much stuff you have touched on there that is really, really linked to the theme of this episode being ecology. Um, and ecology is the branch of biology that deals with the relations of organisms to one another and to their physical surroundings. So we're looking at the connectedness of everything and we're doing that with a very broad lens. So I think rather than asking our usual question of like, what can we learn from our experience from COVID to better understand climate change? I'm going to ask you a really big question, Ellen. Are both these crises the symptom of a bigger problem? The climate crisis and the COVID crisis? Yeah. Um, I would say they are, Dara. Okay, yes, and that's the I end of the episode. <laughs> Great. Uh, thank you for listening to this. Thank you for listening to the podcast. There we go. Uh, that's it. <laughs> and to tease that out further, I think both of these crises have come about as a result of man's impact upon our natural world or man's big ugly footprint yeah. upon our natural world. Yeah, I think to put it simply that we have a broken relationship with nature, I would say. 
And if we want to fix the climate crisis, we need to fix that. And if we had fixed that in the first place, there is a good chance we could have avoided COVID, minimized the impacts of COVID. Um, and what I mean by that is that the WHO, the UN and the WWF, they've all said that the destruction of nature has been a big factor in causing the pandemic. Um, can you uh, add to that with any of your veterinary, <laughs> veterinary abs- experience, absolutely. Ellen? So I think there are many things that have, have led us to this pandemic. So the destruction of nature, you know, how we use and abuse animals, um, how we use and abuse human beings, um, the social, you know, the social structure of how people live and the fact that we, I mean, Mike Ryan of the WHO has also come out and said that this may not be the last pandemic we see in our lifetimes and this may not be the big one. Um, And as a vet, um, climate change is going to lend itself even further, not necessarily to pandemics, but to new and emerging diseases across both the human and animal world. For sure. And so, yeah, so there's, I think there's two points there, Ellen. One, one would be the, one would be that when we destroy nature, we're coming into contact with nature in a really unnatural way. And mm-hmm. we're, we're encountering animals that we shouldn't be encountering. And we're treating them in ways that they shouldn't be treated. Yeah. A professor, Luke O'Neill, uh, who is, uh, he's a professor of immunology. He fe- he features Trinity. on a radio show here. He's in, he lectures in uh, Trinity College. At one stage mentioned that um, bats shed more virus when they're stressed. <laughs> so basically, if we are doing things to bats that are stressing them out, they are more likely to shed viruses, mm-hmm. making and- making things more, more dangerous. Um, and then the second point you touched on, Ellen, um, is the idea that climate change is going to create the conditions that makes viral transmission more likely. So mm-hmm. even malaria zones are moving further away from the equator as the world as, heats as, up. Yeah, and, and the, the habitat becomes more welcoming to, to mosquitoes, so mosquitoes can move north. And we're seeing a lot of that with insect-borne diseases as well. So diseases that we wouldn't normally see in this country that are maybe more endemic to places like, you know, the Mediterranean countries are starting to move up into southern England. And diseases like that, a lot of us, a disease that a lot of us may have heard of, for example, Lyme disease is starting to become more prevalent in parts of the States and in Northern Europe, partly as we encroach more into the the habitats where ticks live and we could become closer to the wild animals that, that host these ticks. And again, as our world warms and the ticks can actually live for longer seasons, they, they, they don't necessarily have to have as much downtime anymore. And that's a worry. And then we can't forget as well as the world. So I'm going back to the warming world contributing to, to, to emerging diseases and pandemics now. But, you know, we've this whole tract of permafrost in the, the northern part of our planet, all up around the Arctic Circle. and So what is permafrost? So permafrost is frozen land. It's land that has been... So it's, 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 it's basically just... It's frozen earth or frozen soil, fr- frozen land, yeah. and it, it's, it's permanently frozen. 
and it, it doesn't unfreeze. It gets covered in ice and snow and then the ice and the snow melt, but the ground or the tundra remains permanently frozen. But what's happening is that land is now starting to... So it, it, permafrost doesn't melt, apologies, it thaws um, because it can't melt because it's actually a solid structure. So it thaws out. But as that permafrost thaws, um, animals that have been held in that permafrost in stasis for hundreds and thousands of years are starting to emerge. Uh, you know, animals from uh, another time period on our planet completely. Yeah. And with those animals... Are... <laughs> Ellen, is it going to be like Night at the Museum where loads of like cavemen and woolly <laughs> mammoths and saber-toothed tigers and stuff come back to life? <laughs> okay, right. I'm making a complete hames of, of explaining this. Right. No, what I'm trying to say is that in, in the permafrost, we have like carcasses of humans and carcasses of animals. So they're dead and they won't be coming back as zombies. But we also have potentially got microbes buried in there as well. So like bacteria or viruses. And, you know, while there shouldn't be any risk from those those microbes, they, they should be inert and dead. There There is there is always a possibility there that as, as the permafrost thaws, we could be opening a Pandora's box Um and I think the reason why this has come up onto people's radar is that we have seen an outbreak of anthrax in Russia. Um, and that has there, there's been a link made, a potential link to that outbreak um, being associated with the thawing of, of a 75-year-old reindeer carcass in the permafrost. Yeah, nature is so connected and we really don't... Mm. I think you've really illustrated there, Ellen, some of the connections that we just don't think of and aren't really aware of. And then I suppose similarly there, or conversely, maybe, there are things we do that we have done in, you know, more frequently in recent times that have exacerbated the virus. So the virus was enabled to travel around the world at record speed because of how connected humanity are via via flying. Um so I'm not saying we all need to stop flying. I think we all need to reduce flying. But, I, you know, I think flying is essential. I'm not saying that we need to go back to it, but we do need to be aware of those of those consequences, of those dangers. And similarly, you know, the virus was enabled by spreading in poorly ventilated indoor settings. So the last time, the last time we had... Uh, pandemic in Ireland, say the Spanish flu, there wouldn't have been people meeting up in restaurants. Do you know what I mean? There yeah. wouldn't have been mass gatherings of people to the scale that we have it now. Like people wouldn't be going from Dublin to Galway for a night out for the crack or a Christmas. You wouldn't be able to travel to loads of different places to meet loads of different groups. And then I suppose like talking about our disconnect with nature, all that mixing over Christmas, that cold weather made us keep our windows closed and the poor ventilation let the virus run rampant far more than it would have in the summer. And I think a lot of us kind of overlook that. Um, and I'm not saying like we need to stop all this traveling and mixing either. Uh, I can't wait to meet people when it's possible. And the mobility we have now is fantastic. But in relation to climate, in terms of emissions and COVID, in terms of transmission of the virus, that mobility does have big impacts. Yeah, just getting connected to the weather and the seasons. Like how many times, 
do you have occasion to now, rather than go outside the door to see what the weather is like, to check the app on your phone? Oh, I know. Yeah, it's shocking. <laughs> like you, I was talking to you yesterday, Ellen, and you were telling me we're both in Dublin. I'm in the north side. Ellen's in the south side, closer to Cork. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, you said to me about how your kids were playing in the snow. And I was like, geez, we didn't have any snow up here. And then I was thinking afterwards, I was like, did we not have snow or have I not looked out the window? <laughs> but I think like climate change as well, at a fundamental level, is being caused by our disconnect with nature. And we can't see it. Like no other creature could wreak the destruction that we are wreaking on nature and survive. Because if you think about it, like, they will be just... Maybe cockroaches? <laughs> no, but but still, Alan, if, if they... Because they can only... No, I'm joking. They can, <laughs> I know. <laughs> they can only destroy their immediate surroundings. And if they yeah. destroy them, then they're, you know, then they are in complete turmoil. Like, if if you destroy your surroundings, then you're in trouble. Yeah. The, the population of wild animals um, varies. It will rise and the, fall. Rise it will and rise fall and fall with the availability with, of resources. Of Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Whereas we seem to be able to just take resources willy-nilly with, with no regard for the consequences, either for ourselves, our fellow humans, yeah, our future yeah, yeah. generations, and very importantly, other living things upon the planet. It's that disconnect from nature does impact us in loads and loads of ways. Let's look at the good side of humanity that we saw in the pandemic. In your personal experience, Ellen, what were the good things that you experienced as a result of this? Um, the good things. Well, I think I've said it before. I took for me and for so many other people, the joy to be brought by the sea. So yeah, the, yeah. The, the mental health benefits, the, the crack, the feeling of just triumph uh, if you can jump in the sea. That's one. The joy brought by birds to so many people, people just rediscovering nature, people being able to eschew a long commute and go for a walk with the time they'd saved and just appreciate their natural environment. Um, and if we go a little bit beyond the pandemic, back to the Australia forest fires, the risks people took to actually save our natural world, the risks people took to, to save koalas, um, you know, to save animals. Like humans actually deep down love, They there is a complete love in us for nature and for living yeah. things. And we've just lost yeah. it along the way a little bit. And, and not only that, but there is, uh, humans do have a love for humanity. Do you know what I mean? And that's yeah. what I really found was that the pandemic showed us the best, the best of us. Like there was a real sense of solidarity, a real sense of doing things for other people, a real sense of genuine care and a willing to sacrifice for each other. Absolutely. People, community, a sense of community. People got a sense of community. People really enjoyed the time that they had with their kids that they didn't have. <laughs> and obviously working from home brings its own challenges and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, when but you weren't throwing biscuits at them to make them go away. <laughs> But there, <laughs> um, but the, at least it's only biscuits, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> but there are. Um, but I there, kept the stones for the really bad days, Dara. 
but no, but you know, there are people that that was a lovely thing that they said, right, I'm go- I have time with my children now. And while that's a positive, a really, really positive thing to the positivity was short, was short lived in this episode. Why, <laughs> why, why did it take a pandemic to show us the good side of humanity? Do you know, why did it take a pandemic for people to have time to spend with their children for people to have time to look out for each other, for people to have time to just slow down their pace of life. Why did it take a pandemic for us to see the good side of humanity? My answer is going to sound like an oxymoron, but I think inertia, inertia is what, inertia is the problem because we're all so busy on this hamster wheel running to try and keep up. It took a pandemic to make us stop and get off. Yeah, and, and actually slow down, and I, and I think that's where the name, you know, where our name of the podcast, the COVID alarm clock, really comes to the fore. Because if you think back to the normal that we had before the pandemic, there were loads of things that were <laughs> terrible about it. Like the the old normal gave us Donald Trump in the US, the old normal gave us Brexit, the old normal gave us a housing crisis here, poor public services. Long commutes. and Long commutes, mental health problems. The old normal is what caused the climate crisis. You know, Mm. it shouldn't take a global pandemic for us to have time to spend with our families, for us to be living a sustainable pace of life. That's where we start to see how everything is connected. You know, we're talking about ecology in a really big picture that so many of the problems that we had in the old normal are also the problems that are contributing to the climate crisis and are also the problems that are exacerbating the COVID crisis. But that's that's where we need, though, to use this time to think about how we can change and how we can work with this inertia and actually make change because it's very easy even if you've fallen off the hamster wheel it's very easy to just hop back on and fall back into that old pace of life again it it actually takes a bit of strength and solidarity and leadership to to change i hope this doesn't sound too extreme maybe it does but i would liken it to i would liken it to addiction <laughs> Yeah. You know, nobody nobody wants to be addicted to things. People know that it's bad for them, but they keep doing it anyways and and they can't help it and you know the best research on addiction will show that addiction is often as a result of people's environment. You know, it's not it's yeah. not something within you, it's the environment that you're within that is a huge part of that and and you can overly simplify it and, and focus it uh, focus it as a as an individual problem um and i would liken so- that and you know there's loads of there's loads of things in our society that are really addictive like social media like or need for consumption like even food you know an obesity problem that's that's a complete disconnect from nature i think it can just be very hard yeah, as you like, what basically then we need is not just individual change, but entire system change, and that's what COVID showed us. That using, if you have system change, now this isn't exactly the kind of system change would anyone would have wanted the COVID, the change brought by COVID, 
But with system change, you can have mass individual change and people can live better lives. Now, not everybody got better lives out of the COVID. For all the people that got to, you know, stop commuting and start sea swimming and spend more time you know, not throwing biscuits and stones at their children. Um, there, there were people who lost jobs and people who, who you know, had had mental health difficulties. But at the same time, it's it's shown us how, with system change, you you can bring about abrupt change, and yeah, we can yeah. work on it to make it better. And yeah, and there's a, there's there's fields that talk, you know, that talk about the links between individual change and collective change sort of under the umbrella of transformative education say which which looks at you know we need a change of mindset we need a change of lifestyle we need a change of culture we need a change of uh i guess societal values one type of change enables the other Mm -hmm. um and once again you know i think that all falls under that umbrella of ecology of everything being connected and I've sort of boiled it down to two phrases to show that connectedness. So the first one is a COVID one and it's what's good for society is good for responding to COVID and the second one is a climate one and it's what's good for the planet is good for us. So let's take the COVID one first. If we have a well-resourced society if we have schools with lower class numbers, if we have a well-functioning health service, if we have less inequality and safe working conditions, if we have healthier people, we can deal with COVID better. Absolutely. And if you have, exactly, and if you support in place for those who are, you know, economically vulnerable, um, socially vulnerable, vulnerable from a health point of view, then you have a society that can respond in a really fantastic way to what happens in a pandemic, to those people who can be left behind and badly affected in a pandemic. So if we take some specific examples, say like the overcrowded schools. So we are recording this in the first week of January and we've had a big debacle where schools haven't been able to reopen. Part of the reason for that is that schools have been grossly underfunded, that class sizes are the biggest in Europe. So this problem that we've had for ages is now making it really, really difficult for us to allow anyone to return to school in any great sense. Um, And from a building point of view, ventilation nobody thought about the importance of a well ventilated environment for those people who, li- who who go to school as well so many schools don't have adequate ventilation and that's a really simple cheap fix if if it's thought about you know before you build a school or if if you're going to retrofit a school um that's so important and good ventilation isn't just good for COVID. Good ventilation is good for good learning. <laughs> you know, you learn better when you're breathing fresh air. That's like, <laughs> that's really simple. That's really basic. So, um, CO2 is not just bad for the, as a GH, as a greenhouse gas, CO2 is also bad for your brain when you're trying to think yeah, clearly. And it, yeah. like, and, it, and it genuinely is. Um, working conditions as well. If you think of how unsafe working conditions, maybe in meat factories or maybe elsewhere, 
enable the spread of COVID, like they shouldn't have been there in the first place. People shouldn't be working in unsafe conditions. And Dara, um, they shouldn't have been going home to unsafe environments because so yeah, many people yeah, yeah. who work in meat factories because perhaps they live in a direct provision centre or in other cases, people who work in jobs where they can't afford to pay rent to live, you know, as, in what we would see a normal environment. So they're sharing bedrooms, you know, adults, several adults sharing bedrooms. That's that's not that's not a symptom of a well-functioning society yeah. where people and can't afford the basic and, dignity to have their own bedroom. And that ties in so much to the housing crisis in Dublin. Like rents are crazy here and the living conditions that people are paying huge amounts of money for. You might have two or three people sharing a bedroom. You Sometimes might people have, sharing a bed on shifts. Yeah, you might have eight or nine people living in a house made for four people. All of these things were terrible before the pandemic and they're terrible for the pandemic. Uh, so it really, really highlights that what's bad in society makes COVID worse. And it's you easy know, to say, Dara, oh, well, that's just their problem, you know. But it th- isn't just their yeah. problem because if you get a virus outbreak in a meat factory and, you know, well, I don't mix with those kind of people or whatever. Yeah, Ellen, and well, you do. <laughs> that really shows how we were saying that the transformation involves changes of, you know, societal structures, but also a change in mindset. We have to take away this individual blame, you know, of like, yeah. oh, well, it's their fault. Like, it's not. Like, if you're like, and and <laughs> I guess it's a hard thing to accept, but like, I have a pretty good life. Um, and most of that is is down to luck, <laughs> do you know? Like, yeah. like, I work hard and and I feel I do the right things most of the time. But loads of people work hard and do the right things most of the time. And they're just not as lucky as me, do you mm. know? Uh, and that and can be mean, really like, hard lucky, to accept. Like where you've been born, who your parents yeah, were, your and, ability yeah. to access education, yeah. you know. And and that can be really, really hard for people to accept uh, that like, yeah, you worked hard, but that's not enough for some people. So we've we've developed that society COVID link enough. So let's flesh that out a bit more in terms of climate with the view that's what what's good for the planet is good for us. Ellen, any thoughts on that? So absolutely, Dara, what's good for the planet is of course good for us because if we wreck the planet, what are we going to live on? And, you know, it, it comes back to even our impacts on even the smallest part of the ecosystem can come back and impact on us hugely. For example, if you even think of our food chain, if something as minor and insignificant as plankton, for example, for some reason gets wiped out, the fish that feed on that and then the fish that feed on those fish, um, they can become impacted and they can starve and die. And that that impacts our food chain. That's a, one of our food sources wiped out potentially. So every time we destroy part of the ecosystem every time we pump more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere and change the temperature of our planet that ultimately impacts on our home our common home that we share with all living things that's a good example Ellen. and there's a lot of medical professionals that and doctors who are talking about this idea of planetary health or one health 
uh, described a similar approach is described in different terms. Basically, when our environment is healthy, we have a chance of being healthy. So if our air is polluted, we won't be healthy. So like One Health as a vet... One Health is something that I would be very in, engaged with and One Health is an approach that recognises that the health of people is closely connected to the health of animals and to our shared environment. Our environment impacts on humans and animals that live there. If you don't have a healthy wildlife reservoir, you can end up with, you know, changing insect populations, you can have emerging diseases. If you don't have a healthy environment where your air is clean, where your water is clean, where you have enough green space for your mental health, you can end up with um, pe- humans that are not healthy. Um, and then how how we treat humans, how we treat animals and the drugs we use to treat them can impact very much on our environment. So, for example, if we are careless in our use of antibiotics, we can end up with something called antimicrobial resistance, which, um, you know, would put humanity back by a hundred years if if we lose our antibiotics. Um, for ex- <laughs> it's re- it's the, this episode is really <laughs> Ellen's guide to the apocalypse at the moment. <laughs> it's like, well, if climate doesn't get us and COVID doesn't get us, it might be the permafrost. Well, it might t- be the antibiotic <laughs> resistance. And let me tell you about the dung beetles. And as well, you know, for example, as vets, we use a lot of things to kill creepy crawlies, lungworms, fleas. Mm. And that kind of impacts on our waterways. It can impact our dung beetles, which are very important for, you know, turning nutrients back into the soil. So like, but to be clear, like all of these products, like the antibiotics, the antiparasitics that we all use, they have a really important role to play in human and animal health. But it's just because they also carry these wider environmental impacts, it's essential that they're used responsibly and judiciously by the doctors, by the farmers, by the vets, by by everybody who uses them. And yeah, and tying it back then to the connections to humans is like those kind of practices are in our food chains and we will be healthier if we were eating more natural food. So organic food that doesn't use that stuff and that doesn't use pesticides and all of those toxic chemicals um, contribute to our health. And Ellen, you know, you've showed really clearly the connections that we were talking about with COVID that that our living environment and living conditions exacerbate COVID and that our conditions and our environment affect our well-being and affect our health and you know going back to what we said about slowing down for covid and giving people a chance to appreciate the good things is that the stuff that is destroying the planet our pace of life and our consumption isn't good for our mental well-being it's not good for our mental or physical health so in tackling the climate change issue we can make so many other things so much better and we kind of have to do that I think to effectively tackle climate change Mm. I think I suppose one thing we would say is we absolutely recognize that there have been mental health implications due to the lockdowns associated with COVID so I suppose we're not talking about those particular aspects of the changes brought about by COVID but we are talking about the ability to slow down for sure, for sure. And, and like, increase your life yeah, quality. And, and and that's why, yeah. And two things, I suppose, from that is some really interesting stats, like from the COVID lockdown, is that the number of premature births were down 
during the lockdown. So if you had a baby during lockdown, it was less likely to be a premature birth than if you had one during normality. So they don't know if it's air pollution. They don't know if it's hygiene. They don't know if it was stress stress levels. But whatever it was, (laughs) you were less you were more likely to come to full term during a global pandemic <laughs> than during normal times. So there's clearly, like, you know, what like... What does that say? Like, what yeah, is that actually saying about totally, society? Totally. You know, if your life is less stressful mm. during a global pandemic <laughs> than it was before a global pandemic, then... There's something wrong with the way we're living. Yeah. Yeah. And and just to come back to mental health, like the pandemic has obviously stripped away loads of stuff we need for good mental health functioning, like especially socializing. And the longer it goes on, the harder it gets. But actually, the society we were living in before COVID times also stripped away these things we need for good mental health functioning. It took us away from our green spaces. It made us work really long hours. It it diminished the sense of community in the places we're living. All these things that we need to be at our best as humans were taken away before the pandemic. And the pandemic is just kind of making us realize that these things are gone. And that is, that is what this podcast is essentially all about. Like that is the COVID alarm clock. That is the wake up call. Um, And that is what we need to confront and we need to address if we're going to tackle climate change. Mm. So let's let's think about that a bit more and, and think about where society is going. And once again, I'm conscious of this question and I'm conscious of the things that we have solved in the last 30 years. But Ellen, is the world a better place to live now than it was 30 years ago? Um, that's, I think many things have improved. I suppose, you know, like, for example, in, in the West, certainly, you know, women's rights, democracy, you know, so, so many things have, have really improved. Living standards have unquestionably improved. But with it, we have a whole new, you know, I suppose, pandemic of things like obesity, um yeah. social social anxiety is huge. Yeah. Um I think we certainly have a problem with with consumption and you know yeah. so, we think yeah. that we can buy our I suppose it sounds a bit trite but we kind of think we can buy our happiness. You know yeah. if you go but like oh in my day we didn't need I don't know this and that but where we get our happiness from how we gauge our success and how do we measure if the world is a better place? So are people happier than they were 30 years ago? And if they're not, then like, what, what are we doing? What's, what's the point? What's the point of progress if we're not, if we're not happier? Um, are people healthier? And you, you touched and I've touched upon obesity. Like, are, are, people, are people healthier? Uh, life expectancies. Not just obesity, but there's a lot of new, like autoimmune diseases, you know, we have a lot more asthma. We have a lot more um, irritable bowel syndrome. There's a lot more diseases in the Western world that that we didn't have to the same extent a hundred years ago. Like air pollution in Europe contributes to four hundred and fifty thousand 
premature deaths every year. I would say Europe is probably the continent with the cleanest air in the world. Mm-hmm. And we're still doing that. So all these things that we say is progress and is making our lives better. Like we need to take a step back. If you think of, so you mentioned obviously women's rights and that's still a huge issue in some places, Mm -hmm. but let's go back 60, 70 years and women's right to work. Like it's great to have the right to work, but (laughs) surely the, surely the real progress would have been like you have a household a man's working full time, the woman's doing all the work at home. Surely the progress is a man's working two and a half days a week, a, ma- a woman's working two and a half days a week, and they're sharing the housework at home. Yeah. For me, progress isn't... Uh, Wait, now two people can be working full full time. I know, Dara. Yeah. For me, progress isn't, oh, now we can all work full time and mm. spend less time with our families. Do you know? Now we can all work full time and and have less time for leisure activities so we we need to ask those big questions like absolutely the objective one of the big objectives of society and technology and all these amazing advancements should be working less <laughs> what yeah, are we doing this microwave if, with these processed meals <laughs> will give you more time with your family no they just give you more time to work <laughs> <laughs> but but what 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 are we doing? What are we yeah. doing if we're not saying like that all this te- technological advancement is so that we have more time for ourselves? Like what <laughs> what are we at? Yeah, and and that all ties into, I suppose, a bigger question that once again shows our disconnect with nature, and that we need to start asking is how much is enough? Yeah, <laughs> like how much do you need? How much do you want? How much is enough? Like there's this, we're tied into this thing of wanting more, of need, of needing more. You know, the nature survives by codependence and sufficiency. And we have completely lost, lost the run of ourselves in that regard. And that is a question that we need to start asking. How much work is enough work? There's never um, enough. You'll never have enough. There's yeah, no such and, thing as and, enough. And that's when we start talking about that change in mindset that's needed to, that that interacts with the change in society. That's a huge question. How much is enough? How much do you need? Mm. Um, will having will having more make you happy? Um, so Ellen, how much is enough? Oh, Dara, that's a huge question. So, <laughs> I suppose, firstly, I think I would need to sit down and actually assess my whole life and try to think, well, what is enough? But more broadly, I think the lens I'd need to look at it through would be, you know, what fulfills me as a human being? What makes me content? And what makes me feel secure in the life I'm living? I think that that's how I would look at crystallizing it. That's the lens I would look at it through. And so, Dara, I think that is our solution for this final podcast and it is to take the time to think about you know what is enough for you what is enough for your family what is enough for this country and you know how you need to look at it how you need to assess it and take take time to think about that take Mm. take as much time as you need and use that as a basis for for beginning to change your life so that we can live on a planet that can sustain us. 
and to to say that the the enough thing works both ways you know like maybe i have maybe i'm consuming too much food or i'm buying too much clothes and 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 enough will be less but maybe i need to expect more from say the government maybe not they're not doing enough maybe the conditions in schools aren't good enough you know so enough works both ways and enough it's such a good question to ask about everything to be honest yeah. like um like you <laughs> this is sorry this is getting into like counseling and stuff but like to say just to say to people you are enough <laughs> Yeah. as the person that you are you are enough you're not defined by your work um you are your, enough yeah. and you are valuable as you are and then I also have to ask myself the question how much climate action is enough you know and and that that's something that people involved in climate action really struggle with because it's this huge crisis and like nothing it's never ever, enough. And yeah nothing ever feels like enough mm. but I have to accept that there's a limit to the amount of information I can take on. Like we're in a pandemic, we're we're in a climate crisis, and I have to say, okay, enough information here is enough. And I have to say, so I've said for the last couple of months, this podcast is enough. This action that I'm doing now is hopefully going to make a difference. And this is enough. And it's something that I constantly reevaluate. Like what what my enough is now isn't going to be enough in maybe two months or whatever and it is it's not uh it's a question that you'll always come back to i think in in loads of different lenses but it's a really great question to ask yourself and two things i would say there dara is it's okay to be good enough and perfect is the enemy of good so you don't have to be perfect you just have to be good enough but you need the time to actually sit down and think about that. You can't do that while you're running around mad. And that's how you see, yeah. And that's once again where you see the connectedness of stuff is that we're we're too busy <laughs> to be able to sit back and, and think of those things. And also like talking about things that are good for the planet and good for people. And one thing that I've sort of dwelt on a bit is, you know, people flying off on foreign holidays and people need like people needing holidays. And I suppose I've been thinking about it more and more. I don't want to live a lifestyle where I feel I need a weekend getaway every three months. Do you know? To recharge. Yeah, that's not mm. that's not the way I want to live my life. I want I'm much happier with the slower pace of life, earning less money and being able to stay on an even keel. Or then let's think of it another way and say well maybe I want to have working conditions where actually I can take two months off and do slow travel every Mm. year or every couple of years and I know this all sounds so abstract so idealistic so unbelievable but if I had told you what was going to happen with COVID on the 1st of January you would not have believed the scale no. of change. And the first thing in making any of these changes is, you know, is is envisioning it, is saying, actually, it's not too much to ask for a four-day working week. It's not too much to ask that I shouldn't be working 35 hours a week. It's not too much to ask 
that I should be living on a safe planet <laughs> in 50 years time. Absolutely. It's not too much to ask that my grandchildren will be able to see, you know, that elephants will still walk the earth when 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 they're born, yeah. that whales will still be in the sea, that the coral reef will still be alive, that, you know, it's not too much to ask that a household can survive on one income. Yeah. From the man, the woman, or a combination of the two. Yeah. It's and not it's too not... much to ask that you should be able to have your see your children, you know, that you're not firing them into a crash at seven in the morning to collect them yeah. at six in the evening in order to pay the mortgage. It's not too much to ask that our politicians have all those aims of the things that you were talking about. And it's not too much to ask that the media uh, cover those things right. It's not too much to ask that that science is being listened to. Like science is our best understanding of reality. Mm. And it's not being reflected in, in politics. It's not too much to ask that reality is reflected in, <laughs> in our politics and our economics. So I suppose so many of us are saying, and you hear so many times, oh, I just can't wait to get back to normal. What do you think people mean when they say, does everyone want to just go back to normal? What yeah. do you think they should take and, from the COVID and what should they, you know? Yeah, and that's, you are never, yeah, that's exactly it. You're never going to have a better chance to change things, you know? Change uh, your normal. Yeah, exactly. And because because our old normal is what is putting us on the path of climate breakdown and planetary disaster. And the scary thing is, we don't have to change anything. We just have to carry on as normal. <laughs> That's yeah. the path we're on. Um, we just have to carry on business as usual, keep doing what we're doing and not change anything. And we're we're heading for climate catastrophe. So we have to ask, things have to change. We know things need to change to avoid climate disaster. Things need to change. So what things of your old normal are you going to change? And are you going to take the climate crisis into account when you are creating your new normal post-pandemic? This episode of the COVID Alarm Clock and the whole series was written and presented by Dara Wynn and Ellen Hegarty. It was produced and edited by Robert Cotter. Original music composed by Robert Cotter. Weekly animations and images on social media by Willie O'Brien. Climate versus COVID speech and Million versus Billion video by Charlena Wolfheimer. And to everyone who was a sounding board and gave feedback on early edits of episodes, thanks so much. I'd like to give a special thanks to Emily Rose, Sean and Aoife for staying off the broadband and to Paul for keeping them entertained and downstairs. And a shout out to Sean for letting me record under his bed. Please follow us on social media for up-to-date news on the podcast and the climate crisis and what we might be getting up to in the future. We are on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at COVID Alarm Clock. Lads, thanks so much for listening to the podcast and please keep spreading the word. Bye! Bye! Bye, 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 bye. I always want the last word. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>